Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's where you'll find details of our online events, including on May the 16th, Jeffrey Hirth on Establishing the Jewish State, 1945 to 49. Coming up on the show today, Matthew Continetti, author of the new book, The Right, the Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. Uh, Matt, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. And congratulations uh, on the book. So why a hundred year war for American conservatism? Well, I think the way to tackle that question would to start with the uh, chronology, so the hundred years. Um, and I chose the hundred year period because many of the standard accounts of the post-war conservative movement um, focus on the last 75 years, uh, focus on the American conservative movement in the aftermath of the Second World War. But what I found is that um, that narrative doesn't really tell the whole story. And if you broaden the scope of the narrative to include the last 100 years, to include the right prior to World War II, you see that in some ways, the Republican Party of 2020 uh, resembles the Republican Party of 1920. And the second thing I would say um, about that subtitle, uh, a war, uh, as, you, as you put it, uh, as the subtitle puts it, um, really emphasizing um, the fact that American conservatism, the American right, is not monolithic. Um, it is various. There are many different figures, ideas, and factions competing for influence over this century-long span. And one of the themes of my book is that there's nothing inevitable about um, one faction or another uh, gaining dominance over the others. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because uh, I mean this is a, this is an intellectual history, but you yourself have also occupied a place within the within the dialogue or the war, to use your uh, words, uh, over over the last uh, couple of decades. That uh, and in fact, you start the book by talking about your first job when you were at the Weekly Standard, the frontal cortex of the American right, uh, as you say, uh, and and that was a moment for you when really the the uh, some like the Weekly Standard was setting the agenda for the White House, for Congress, Washington, and, and almost by extension, uh, the, the conservatism around the world. Right. Uh, I begin the book uh, with my arrival to 1150 17th Street, a building uh, at the intersections of uh, 17th and M Streets Northwest and the nation's capital in July of 2003. And uh, I was there to begin uh, a job at the Weekly Standard magazine, uh, a conservative uh, journal of opinion. Um, but also housed in that building were many other significant conservative institutions at the, at the time. The top three floors were occupied by the American Enterprise Institute, uh, where I work today. There is another smaller think tank called um, the Project for a New American Century, which had been very influential in debates over defense and in debates over what to do about Saddam Hussein in the late 90s and in the post 9-11 period. The Philanthropy Roundtable was on uh, the same floor as the Weekly, weekly Standard. The Public Interest, uh, the quarterly public policy journal was uh, a couple blocks away at 16th and L Streets. Um, the Hoover Institution's offices were just up the street at that time uh, in South DuPont Circle. So um, when I was 
stepping into the Weekly Standard, what I didn't quite recognize at the time, but I do now, is that I was stepping into an entire world, uh, a world that had been built up over the decades and represented a the um, the more idea-oriented or policy-oriented side of a conservative governing class that had really been consolidated during the Reagan presidency and during the presidencies of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and George W. Bush. Well, that's gone now. Uh, the building at 1150 17th Street was um, uh, demolished. Um, it is has not been replaced. Um, and uh, all of these different institutions have either scattered, or in the case of the Weekly Standard, uh, closed. The Weekly Standard closed in December of 2018. And the center of gravity in Washington and in the conservative world today has really moved up toward Capitol Hill toward the Heritage Foundation, toward the Hillsdale College Kirby Center, toward a new group sponsored by the Claremont Institute, um, really um, in alignment with the populist agenda of Donald Trump and um, the America First uh, movement. Yeah, as, as you say, I mean, it was a high watermark for a particular kind of American conservatism. And, and, and it's interesting from a personal perspective that really you were part of that group that was in the ascendancy when you started out. But uh, as you make clear, you're now, uh, you're now seen as being part of an establishment that is in conflict with the kind of populism that you just described there. So in, in some ways, you're on the outside now, where once you were on the inside. I'd say that's true. Um, uh, I guess inside, outside depends on where you sit. But uh, from from where the decisions uh, are being made in today's Republican Party, uh, I'm not as close to them um, as maybe I once was. Of course, 20 years ago, I was a junior editor. So it wasn't as though I was, you know, at the center of things, even when I was in the inside. Um, look, I'll say that uh, a lot has changed in the 20 years uh, where I've uh, that I've spent in Washington uh, writing and thinking about American politics. And um, that change on the American right is one of the reasons I wrote this book. Um, first, to investigate that change. How did it happen? What were the causes of the rupture uh, within conservatism um, on the right? And also were, to find if there had been precedent for these types of uh, conflicts and changes in orientation on the American right. What I found was that um, the causes were pretty simple, uh, immigration and Iraq, uh, to, to put it bluntly, and the precedents were, uh, were many over the 100-year uh, course of, the, uh, of my history. And before we talk about the the politics, what about the intellectual influences on you? You talk about being an undergraduate, reading some of the conservative classics like Russell Kirk and Milton Friedman and so on. Um, I mean, had, had you always been a conservative or, or was there some kind of Paul on the road to Damascus moment for you <laughs> when you were uh, when you were a young man? I say that when I went to poly uh, college, uh, I arrived in New York um, as a freshman at Columbia in uh, the fall of 1999. Uh, I was a, kind of a Clinton Democrat, I think I would say, um, kind of a, a center, center um, Democrat. Um, in many ways, I still am probably trying to find the political center even today, 20 years later. What made me a philosophical conservative uh, was my study of the great books at Columbia. And so this is a lesson in unintended consequences, uh, which is a conservative principle. But um, at Columbia, of course, uh, it's known for its core curriculum, 
uh, where undergraduates have to spend two years reading the uh, great works of uh, Western uh, literature and political thought. And it was while reading uh, during my sophomore year texts like Plato's Republic, like Aristotle's Politics, um, like um, uh, Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France, uh, Smith and the Wealth of Nations, the Federalist Papers, um, I basically uh, came to the conclusion that that type of constitutionalist conservatism, the system of natural liberty, as Adam Smith put it, uh, that is uh, what uh, those were the core ideas in which I believed: rule of law, individual liberties, constitutional procedures. Uh, and then, uh, shortly after I finished that course, the beginning of my junior year, um, 9/11 happened. And uh, I had a front row seat since I was a resident advisor for about 30 uh, first year students who had just arrived on campus. And we were in a uh, skyscraper dorm, John Jay, if you're familiar with it, which is one of the taller dorms on campus. And so we had a front row seat to that day. And um, I think that definitely solidified in me um, the belief that America needs to be engaged in the world and um, militarily powerful. I mean, you mentioned uh, some of those uh, famous conservative writers like Burke and Smith and so on. And uh, you make the decision, which you outline up front, that you're pretty much going to ignore British, European writers uh, and focus on American ones, which seems to me to be the right approach for the book. But but it does raise that, uh, the interesting question. I remember asking George Will the same one, actually, that, I mean, is American conservatism even conservative? Uh, well, it depends on who you ask. Um, uh, I think American conservatives have always stressed the adjective. Um, I've always stressed the Americanness of it, um, of the politics that they uh, believe in and, and practice. And so, um, well, I, when I teach this material to undergraduates, I, I try to draw the distinction between a more European conservatism focused on uh, defending the inherited institutions of either the, the monarchy or the uh, established church or the aristocracy and nobility. Um, and an American conservatism, which uh, doesn't have any of those things, um, uh, there are no titled classes in America. I mean, there is a class system, but there's no titled classes. Uh, there's no established church. There's no uh, King. So what are American conservatives defending? Well, in my view, as I believe it in George Will's view, uh, we're, just, we're defending the political institutions and principles of the American founding, the ideas of the Declaration of Independence, the structure of government uh, embodied in the Constitution, the political theory of the Federalist. Uh, these are the things that we wish to preserve um, against challenges. And those challenges, I think, can come today from both the left and the right. I mean, it, it's it's one of the things that's always curious, isn't it? A, a conservative movement, movement that is rooted in something which is itself revolutionary. That yes. <laughs> I, I think Gordon Wood always likes to make the point that actually the United States has only had one conservative president, John Adams. Everyone else has been <laughs> some kind of uh, some kind of progressive. And and even Ronald Reagan famously quoting Thomas Paine that we have it in our power to make the world over again. It's just about the the most unconservative sentiment we can possibly imagine. That's right. I mean, it speaks to the distinctiveness of America in some ways. And, um, you know, uh, Leo Strauss, the conservative thinker who I discuss um, in my book, he liked to joke that, you know, one of the most conservative organizations in the country is named the Daughters of the American Revolution. 
Um, so I do think that one way of judging where you sit on the right is what type of revolution are you responding to? For the American right in the 20th century, um, they saw itself as uh, themselves as defending the American Revolution against a subsequent revolution, the revolution of 1932, the revolution of FDR's New Deal. That's the revolution that um, post-war American conservatives in particular define themselves against. And it's, a, it's, it's an interesting point as well, isn't it, that, that conservatism is not always the same as the Republican Party. Those two things are not necessarily the same. Absolutely. Um, uh, this is, I think, um, one of the biggest distinctions um, we have to make when we, when we have these discussions. Um, while today they may seem uh, synonymous, um, for much of the history of the last hundred years, conservatism and the GOP were, were separate. And there took a great amount of effort, which I go into in the, in the course of my narrative, for the conservative movement, for the post-war conservative movement to reestablish itself uh, inside um, the institutional structure of the Republican Party. Uh, and it was not an easy thing, and it was by no means an inevitable thing that um, the post-war conservative movement would be able to uh, recapture, for example, the presidential nomination of the Republican Party um, in the years after World War II. Um, uh, nor was it easier inevitable for the conservative movement once it comes to power with the presidency of Ronald Reagan to put into place um, uh, ideas which had been kind of formulated and argued over um, many decades before. Yeah, and I suppose the, I mean, the other distinction that then, and actually it comes across very strongly in the book, and which I think really gets to the heart of something, is that very often we can see, we confuse being right wing with being conservative, uh, but those two things again are not necessarily the same. You can be right wing and conservative, but you can also be conservative and not right wing. Yes, um, so this is why the book is called the right, uh, because I think I, I wanted to establish a broader category than the types of American conservatism that first come to our minds when we hear that word. Um, and the right uh, is not necessarily um, in agreement with American conservatism on things like uh, constitutional procedure, on the scope of individual liberty, on um, the importance of uh, market competition and choice. Uh, the right can encompass groups that um, take a much more solidaristic approach uh, to politics and to economics. Um, it can encompass groups that are actually critical of the American founding. Um, it can encompass groups that are much more uh, populist and grassroots oriented and have all the features and bugs of populism um, that are not necessarily uh, in accordance with uh, the, the, the ideas and um, norms of American conservatism. And a lot of the, the conservatism that you cover in the book really kind of ride the way throughout the 20th century. It seems to me that conservatism is much more, very often much more pragmatic. It's almost as much a way of life, a disposition as it is doctrinal. Uh, it seems to me that one of the things that changes across your narrative uh, is, is how much more important ideology becomes over time. That's mm -hmm. interesting. Um, uh, you know, I would definitely say that in the immediate post-war period, 
uh, there was the first new right in my narrative. There, there are three new rights overall uh, uh, during the course of these hundred years. The first new right, I would say, fits into your um, assessment. It was uh, expressly against ideology. If you read, say, Russell Kirk, the great traditionalist writer, he mm-hmm. he loathed ideology. For him, conservatism was a disposition. It was a an embrace of tradition, a variety of ancient prescription and even prejudice, he would say. Um, over time, a doctrine is developed, and you can see that expressed in another great conservative text, The Conscience of a Conservative, um, that uh, uh, is released in 1960 under the uh, authorship of Barry Goldwater. We know that the text was ghostwritten by Brent Bozell, another major figure in my narrative, uh, where uh, Goldwater gives basically the credo to post-war American conservatism, belief in limited government, um, a belief in federalism, um, a belief in uh, 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 the market, but also a strong anti-communism. A quarter of that book is devoted to foreign policy. It shows the importance of anti-communism for the American right uh, during the Cold War. And today, uh, I would say that the, there, it's, a, it's complicated. On the one hand, there's no questioning the fact that we've become more tribal in our politics. And so it's less ideological than it is uh, identitarian. If you, were, if you say that you are a conservative, you are expected to support certain things. Those things might not actually even be ideas or policies. Those things are more attitudes and figures right? Um, or brands. Um, on the other hand, you also see now, especially among people who are trying to find a way to move beyond Donald Trump without uh, repudiating him, um, a, a lot of talk about the Trump agenda, right? So there are certain things, uh, certain policies that uh, one must embrace to be, you know, well thought of on the American right. Um, it's always slightly undefined what the Trump agenda is. Is it the originalist judges? Is it the tax cuts? Or is it the border wall and the China tariffs? Um, these, this is all kind of left up for grabs. But you're right. Um, beginning in the, from 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 the post-war period to today, there has been more of a um, a hardening, maybe is the way to put it. And that is true, actually, even of the of the pre-war period that I discuss at length in my book, where, where you know, Presidents Harding and Coolidge didn't call themselves conservative. They just thought that they stood for Americanism, as they put it. <laughs> you know, for them, for them, it was just what they believed was normal uh, uh, or normalcy, as Harding said. Um, and so that, too, was kind of left a little bit, it's less ideological in a way, right? It's just kind of, well, this is the status quo. This is what we embrace. So with that definition of ideas has come um, perhaps a, a more ideological bent. Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, the book really benefits from those early century uh, parallels that you make, Harding and, and Coolidge, yes, but but also you point out that uh, in some ways that uh, Donald Trump's conservatives who are contemptuous of institutions, traditions and norms and, and so on, that, that there's, a, there's a parallel there with William Jennings Bryan and the populace at the, at the turn of the 20th century. Yes, and um, many different uh, forms of populism um, sprout up uh, throughout my book. Um, and you can see, I think, um, similarities between 
populist icons uh, from Brian to McCarthy to George Wallace uh, to Pat Buchanan um, with uh, Donald Trump as well. Um, it is a funny thing that the, uh, the Republican Party today combines in many ways the positions of Harding and Coolidge, non, you know, reluctance to intervene overseas, uh, opposition to immigration, support for some type of policy of economic protection against global uh, economic um, competition with the kind of the sentiments and attitudes of the Bryan Democrats, the populist Democrats, who felt themselves on the outside of everything um, and uh, and who had a very hostile attitude toward big business, which we, we also see today in the Republican Party. It's an interesting synthesis of these two groups that um, a century ago were assumed to be in opposition to one another uh, and were in many cases. Uh, but today, uh, they seem to have fused. And I mean, you you show throughout the book that the that the right has always been uh, susceptible to strongman, charismatic uh, figures at different times. But but they've tended to operate on the outside, to be on the fringes of political discourse. Um, but that but that's not Donald Trump, is it? I mean, his conservatism absolutely dominates the Republican Party now, as we, we saw in recent days, even with the, with the success of J.D. Vance, for example. That's right. And I think the difference here is the fact that uh, Trump became president in 2017. Um, the, the tendencies of populism on the right uh, are, uh, are always present. They're, they are appear throughout my history. But Trump is the first populist figure actually to be become uh, the American president. I would, I do think Reagan had elements of populism to his political uh, persona and to his political agenda, but it was of a different stripe of populism. It was a kind of an unusual populism. It was one um, that uh, was much more optimistic uh, uh, toward the world and, and uh, toward America. It was much more future oriented. And it was one that um, really sublimated uh, some of the more negative tendencies of populism, like conspiracy theories, um, like scapegoating. I wonder what 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 do you think is going to happen in these kind of these important issues that are coming up now? I mean, obviously, there's the the uh, controversy in the last few days about uh, Roe v. Wade. The fact that we're coming out of the the COVID pandemic these are these are big issues that are not just political; they're also cultural. What do you think is is going to happen in terms of conservatism around these big uh, around these big topics? Well, I think conservatism is changing. Um, uh, and I think if Roe v. Wade is overturned, that would be uh, in part an ending to a generation-long fight um, on the right uh, in the, uh, to, to end Roe v. Wade and to return the issue of abortion to the states and to restrict abortion, reduce its numbers. Um, it would also be a beginning. Um, it would be a new era of politics, one that's different from the last 50 years. And um, of course, we don't, that's why you and I are historians, it's much easier to understand the past than the future. Sure um, I think that, it, but it's also of a piece that the nature of our politics is changing. The arguments that occupy much of my book, the arguments over the size and scope of the federal government, arguments over uh, 
the place of uh, world communism. Uh, those arguments are ending. Um, we obviously have problems with Russia today, but it's not the Soviet Union. It doesn't have that ideological appeal. It also is not as strong as it was during the Cold War. Um, we're not really arguing over the size and scope of the federal government. We're arguing over what it means to be an American, who counts as an American, um, what is the what should the status be of American anthems and symbols? How should we view American history? Um, these are much more cultural and visceral issues that seem to be um, uh, occupying politics today. So um, I, I think it's the beginning of essentially the next volume <laughs> of American conservatism, of the American right. And uh, the the American right that's emerging today, I think, is is um, is different um, in in its in its attitudes and in its emphases uh, than the post war American conservative movement, which I. Uh, tell the story of in my book. And, it, in, and in some ways, it, it seems to me that the book is a plea. I mean, this, this is almost how you end the book, that uh, it's a plea for more emphasis on ideas, that ideas should not be crowded out uh, in these debates, uh, not just about the future of conservatism, but about the, the future of the nation. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way to put it. Um, you know, my study has led me to conclude that you need um, you need populist energy uh, uh, essentially to win elections. Um, but if you win elections without ideas that you are ready to enact, um, nothing is solved. And the the uh, conditions animating populists, um, and I do think the populists are responding to real facts on the ground. Um, those won't be addressed, uh, and so the frustration will only build. So, I, I you you have to search out, um, and I think this applies to the left as well. You have to search out the appropriate combination of ideas, um, individuals, and then also grassroots support. And I'd say right now the right is um, heavily grassroots. It's being driven from below the. Uh, conservative intellectual establishment um, is in disarray. A new American right is trying to forge an institutional structure to kind of guide this grassroots energy. But I don't think it's consolidated yet. I don't, I don't think it's fully formed yet. And so it's populism that is now driving the American right. And, and, and do you think when uh, historians come to write about Trumpism, uh, do you think that Trumpism is an idea? Uh, is it something that will outlive the man himself? Uh, or do you think it, it is all about him and his personality? I think there are many people who are trying to extract ideas from Donald Trump's um, uh, biography, from his um, interests, from his uh, sentiments over time. I think fundamentally Trumpism is whatever Trump says it is at a given moment. So it is deeply tied to his personality. Um, and I, I do think that in the course of my history, you find that once the populist leader is removed from the scene, uh, the movement behind him uh, disappears. Now, what's unusual about Trump, not only did he become president, unlike these other figures I discuss, 
but he refuses to leave the scene. <laughs> um, like he says wrongly that the election was stolen from him. He is, I think, uh, seriously considering running out for president again. And so uh, his his movement is is still live. And uh, we just, as you mentioned earlier, Richard, we saw the uh, the power of a Trump endorsement in in the recent Ohio Republican Senate primary. So um, we are still living in the Trump era. And I think that means that historians uh, are going to have to wait uh, a few more years to fully uh, understand um, the fate of the Trump movement. And it, and it, and if you're right, if if it is very much uh, if it is very much about the man himself, that implies that there will eventually be a vacuum. Um, say by the time we get to I don't know twenty thirty two or something like that. <laughs> what do you think that? Uh, what will conservatism look like? What will fill that vacuum? Do you think uh, in in the post Trump era? Well, I do think it'll be largely a function of the institutions and the. Um, leaders uh, of the American right at that moment. And, you know, you can see just how quickly things can change um, in the course, you know, as I say at the beginning of the book, uh, we have the 2012 election where the standard bearers uh, of the Republican Party and the figurehead of the American right is um, Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan. And four years later, it's Donald Trump comes and just wipes that clean. I, I do think there are people who are trying to take lessons from the Trump years, in some ways useful and valuable lessons, um, and yet uh, kind of cabin off um, the parts of Trump that uh, clearly alienated millions and millions of people. Um, and so that you're seeing figures like Ron DeSantis um, take some of Trump's approach as well uh, and combine it with the focus on culture war. Uh, you also see someone like Glenn Youngkin, who is more of uh, the governor of Virginia, who's more of a synthesis of the Romney Republicans and the Trump uh, issue set. Um, I think that is really uh, the choice uh, facing the, the, the movement and the party. Um, and I'm very interested to see how they choose. So the book is The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. It's written by my guest, Matthew Continetti, and published by Basic Books. Uh, but for now, Matt, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damian Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 